0: First of all, I want to do a quick recap. Remember when I said I was going to slightly nuance some of the things I said the other night? Finish off doing the Cycle of Dependent Origination and then look perhaps at an example. See, examples we give can sometimes be quite gross, but they often make a point. Um, So I'm sure you can think of some of your own after I've given you an example of this. Okay, ignorance. Well, you should all know what that is by now. (laughs) Ignorance, not just not to know, but not wanting to know. Um, Ignorance, conditioning formations. And I want to say a little bit more about that. Because one of the elements I haven't spoken about is that, of course, the primary factor in conditioning the formations is volition what's known as chetana so volitions are intentional and that's the whole purpose about them sankaras and karma are actually in the Pali related to the same verbal root which means to act with intention so we are intentionally forming and they are formative Now, as I often say to students when I used to teach in universities, this stuff, in a more academic sense, that in Buddhism, intention is everything. (laughs) Intention is the main point about it, because it's the way that you act, with what intention is behind the activity that's important. So, again, mindfulness. If you ever want to see the dropping apart of the Wheel of Dependent Origination then mindfulness is the key, awareness is the key to it all falling apart. Without it, it just goes on in perpetuity. It just keeps on spinning around. And so the notion of intention is very, very important in Buddhist thought. And as you're probably well aware, you can do the same action with different intentions and then have completely different karmic consequences. Uh, the example I often give, of course, is that um, if you go out looking for rabbits to shoot with a gun, or you run over a rabbit in your car, both result in a dead rabbit, but the intention is quite different behind them, so they have different karmic consequences. Now those intentions are really the stuff of what we are meant to examine, day in, day out, in what we're doing. Even in the sitting process, and I presume Rob's probably talked to you a bit about this, there is the intention to remain alert, the intention to remain attentive in what you're doing. So even the posture you adopt, in some senses, is indicative of your intention. So if the posture you adopt is rather slumped, rather kind of with a slumped back, then it doesn't really, does it, say that you have the intention to remain as aware as possible in this particular (coughs) meditation, in this particular sitting. So even your posture entails intention. Intention. Intention is the direction of the mind, the direction the mind takes, the end to which it is directed. So, volition and intention are at the heart of all Buddhist practice. They're at the very, very core, at the very, very center. And actions that have consequences have fruits, as it literally puts it, which in... um, in some ways, is the content of the sankaras, actions which have fruits are known as vipaka karma. Vipaka karma means that they, they fruit. Now, this doesn't mean they fruit all temporally at the same time, they fruit in different periods. I mean, again, notice the agricultural metaphor. Just as you would plant an orchard of trees, all of different types. They will all have different fruiting periods. So your apricots will fruit at you know, a different time to your pears and your apples will fruit at a different time to your pears perhaps and your plums and everything else. There's a very agricultural metaphor again that's being used or a horticultural metaphor that's being used. Uh, and there's no way of knowing, actually, unlike the, our, my fruiting analogy here with trees, there's no way of knowing when the karma is going to fruit at all. So this is not predictability. You cannot predict it. Now, this is all made to, made to make you aware, by the way. Because you, know, you haven't got a clue what's going to happen. So when you engage in an action with the wrong intention, it's not like saying, well, I roll a billiard ball across the table and by you know um, various laws I can determine which way it's going to go. This is like rolling a billiard ball across the table and I haven't got a clue what's going to happen. When this particular outcome is going to occur. So there's no way of knowing. So all those little thoughts, words and deeds have consequences and we don't know when they're going to catch up with us. It's as simple as that or as difficult as that. So the sankharas are the repository of all these volitional, intentional activities. They are formed and formative. It has those two senses to it, to the notion of the Sankharas. The
1: Sankharas
0: are formations. Formations is a reasonably good translation for this. But they are forming, in some senses, our lives. Now, if you want to put that in really, really simple terms, it means your activities form your lives. Um, But, of course, these activities are formed out of our starting point, out of ignorance. No wonder we're onto a loser. <laughs> yeah. However, the level of ignorance and that's the level of avoidance as well as lack of lack of knowledge, although it's not just lack of knowledge, please bear that in mind the level of avoidance and the level of lack of knowledge differs in everybody. So no, one, two, no two persons' sankharas will be the same, because they're formed out of the different levels of ignorance. So there might be stuff, for example, you don't want to know about, that's different from the stuff I don't want to know about, <laughs> or having a different degree of not wanting to know about it. So it's dependent on the level of ignorance, dependent on what the sankara, how the sankharas are formed. Now some of these, I'm afraid this is Buddhism so it's another list, Mm -hmm. (laughs) some of these actually get down uh, and are sedimented in such a way that they are what's called latent tendencies. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: They are latent propensities or tendencies, which are there if you like as unconscious elements which are forming and conditioning all of our other activities as we go on. Now, there's a list of seven of them, (laughs) and they're called anusias. And that's A-N-U-S-A-Y-A-S, anusias. It can be basically translated as latent tendencies. Often it can be translated as bad tendencies. Um, And there's a whole list of them. There is sense-pleasure. Comma again. Our good old familiar favourite. Yeah. That is a, a latent tendency in the sense that we almost unconsciously gravitate towards you know, sensory pleasure in some form or another. Even the hermit does <laughs> gravitates towards sensory pleasure until they're awakened. Then there is anger ill-will, could be another translation of it. Which also is a kind of latent resultant that one has about the world. Resentment about the way things are. Irritability, anger, (laughs) ill-will. All of these would translate that. Then there, of course, are views. This is this opinionatedness again. And the chief one of them being, of course, what's known as Atavada, the view of the self. Now, of course, understanding all this, and this is why I'm going into so much detail about this, understanding this whole process, having insight into this whole process, and seeing this latent tendency to grasp towards an eye, is actually meant to bring an end to all of that grasping, mm-hmm. bring an end to questions about who am I? Yeah, a basic question we often have. Where am I going?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Where have I been before? There's a whole list of questions the Buddha says that this should bring a stilling to,
2: mm-hmm.
0: actually seeing into this. One sees into this in great depth. It stills all of those questions. Who am I today? Who shall I be tomorrow? Who was I I the day before? Who was I in my past lives? Who will I be in my future lives? All these are meant to be stilled by these questions, because these are all actually questions that circle around self-grasping. So it's the total stilling of self-grasping, awareness and understanding of this process of sangsarering, literally what it means to be human all too human, means. And actually, really, that's what Sangsara is: human all too human, in a strange sort of way. So we have views as being the third. Then we have doubt. Now, some of you will obviously recognise that as part of the hindrances, the Nivaranas. Yeah. The, the hindrances themselves, you know, that's the most difficult one to overcome, is the one of doubt. Yeah. All the others are impediments, but it's actually doubt. It's one of the final things which was eradicated. Yeah, not self, but just doubt. Yeah. What? Skeptical doubt. <laughs> I don't mean just any, any kind of old doubt. I mean really radical, sceptical doubt. A doubt which stultifies you doing anything. A, dull, a doubt which will pull the rug out from under your practice, completely and utterly. That's the sort of doubt. So it's not any old doubt. It's a really radical, sceptical doubt. And even in the history of Western thought, sceptical doubt could never be answered. Is there a healthy doubt? There is healthy doubt, yes. There is. Yes, But sceptical doubt isn't healthy doubt. It's not a healthy questioning. Because actually there is no answer
2: mm.
0: to sceptical doubt. So
2: it's sceptical about what I can do?
0: Yeah. About Not whether it's worth
2: it.
0: It can be that. Can, in fact, it can be skeptical about what the Buddha says, about whether this is worth it, whether I can actually achieve the goal. Is it all pointless in the end? <sighs> These are the kinds of questions that come up through skeptical doubt. And I'm sure some of you must have sat there on the cushion sometime and go, Why am I doing this?
2: Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, <it's>, uh, <laughs> of course, you haven't had
0: this at all, have you? <laughs> Is this a complete waste of time? Couldn't I be doing something more interesting? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's supper going to be? That's not quite sceptical doubt that's it's going off. <laughs> but sceptical doubt, as you can see, is, is really questioning the whole enterprise that you're engaging in, whether it's worthwhile, and whether you could actually ever achieve it at all. So it's actually doubt, which is pretty useless. Mm. It actually demotivates you and can bring you to complete stultification. Inability to do anything. You can talk yourself to a standstill in this. That's what I mean by stultification. Mm. Then there is conceit. Another one of the final ones which is very difficult to get rid of. There is conceit, mana, which is in Pali. Conceit is of three forms. Again, notice the number fetishism. (laughs) I am better than. I am the same as. I am worse than. There's a very good article on conceit, by the way, if you haven't seen Tricycle, a couple of issues back by Christina. She actually wrote a very good article on this whole notion of conceit. Mm. Yeah, and these three phases of conceit. So conceit, well, I am better than. Well, that's the obvious one, isn't it? I am worse than. I always think of a Monty Python sketch where everybody's trying to outdo each other about how bad a childhood they had. <laughs> 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 I was born in a lake.
2: That's,
0: before <laughs> you <watch it> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then I am the same as, putting yourself in the same position Mm -hmm. as somebody else. These are the three three levels of conceit. Then another familiar favourite, and you can see how in a sense, um, I don't know, Buddhism is very eco-friendly, it just recycles the same terms again and again. Desire for continued existence. And then finally ignorance itself. Now all of these are the latent elements which are driving the formations, so the formations are not just about the activity.
1: What was number seven?
0: Number seven, ignorance. Oh,
1: ignorance.
2: Yes. Desire for ignorance, did you say? No, (laughs) desire for ignorance. (laughs) (laughs) I I really want to be ignorant. (laughs) (laughs) know what
0: you say. <laughs> no, Desire no. for continued existence. Oh, Desire for continued existence, that's six, yes. <laughs> Can I just
1: quickly ask one cool. Is this the same as uh,
3: vasana's, the latent tendency? I'm just wondering about
0: the two words. <clears throat> Vasana, yes, it's a similar thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's very similar. There's a slight, slight difference in the meaning of the word, but I won't go into that. It's not, it's not
1: relevant and, here. And also, could con- is conceit sometimes spoken of as arrogance?
0: Conceit is a subtle grasping after self. So, as yes, arrogance, I would say, is more likely to be "I am better than."
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, it's more likely to be of that form, isn't it, rather than "I am worse than." Yeah, mm. but
1: I, I've sort of heard it broken down into these three,
0: which is why I was just sort of checking. To mm. Yeah, but it's—it's. It's, I mean, the actual word literally does mean conceit in Pali and Sanskrit. Yeah. It's a conceit about the nature of the self, and it's a subtle grasping after the self. It's involved. Can also just
3: say, um, did you say that these arise out of actions sedimented?
0: These arise out of past actions, which have been in some ways sedimented into the psyche. So they are latent tendencies within the psyche. And like
3: what's the origination of them? They're like, they're sort of actions that we've learn or
0: whatever. They're actions which we learn is not going on there's no kind of description of how they are particularly formed. They're being formed over, you know, just take this lifetime since we were born. You know, through possibly societal conditioning, parental conditioning, our own conditioning. Yeah, you know, but these are the kinds of things and they differ for everybody, but they're the same basic tendencies, the same basic generic tendencies, which are laid down in, in the psyche. And and they, if you like, will operate on almost like a, well, a pearl's a bit of you know, a piece of grit which forms a pearl. Is a bit of a nice analogy, yeah. But it's the same thing as grit, which actually continues to have influences in forming something else. Yeah, so those are the grit, if you like, in the psyche, which is beginning to form the other actions that we engage in. So behind, as a latent tendency, behind our actions are these seven forms. All the time.
1: (laughs) So, again, behind...
0: Behind our activities, our volitional activities, there is, if you like, operating as grit, Mm. these latent tendencies, which are conditioning those other activities. So we think we make a free choice, but actually we're making a choice which is already being conditioned by a latent tendency within the mind. Now, these, if you like, are the deepest level of the psyche, just like the asavas. They actually feed the asavas. Yeah. We keep them going. Um, there's a lovely word in Pali which is called ahara, which means we keep them going by feeding them. Yeah. They won't exist unless we continue to feed them in some way. What these? Yep. Both the anusias, these latent tendencies, mm-hmm. and the asavas, the deep, you know, the effluent that I was talking about, the kind of crap that we keep, keeps pouring out of us. So we keep on feeding those. And in many ways, the cycle of dependent origination is a description of how we continue to feed, how we continue to give nutriment. Yeah, okay. Are there any positive
1: latent and as
0: well? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, that doesn't, let me not sound as, as negative. Remember, this is a description of Sangsara. <laughs> what it's saying is, and if you really want a description of the mind as such, um, then because it's Sangsara, these are the things that are very deeply embedded. But the mind also possesses, actually more than all of these, it possesses 25 what's called beautiful factors. Mm. The mind. I'd like to hear about those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> need
1: some you
0: will get some balance, don't worry. So these are factors which are known as sabhava factors. So there are things like um, confidence, sati, mindfulness, hiri, uttapa, which I talked about, you know, in the question and answer session, in terms of shame or self-respect, fear of wrongdoing, and so on and so forth. All of these are present in the mind. All right. So the mind is a bit like a soup. From the Buddhist point of view, with kind of nice ingredients and rather horrid ingredients. Mm. Unfortunately, because it's Sangsara, and this is why, in a sense, it's negative stuff that I'm giving you. because it's Sangsara, then the negative, rather horrid ingredients tend to predominate and they actually obscure mm. the more interesting, subtle tastes <clears throat> which are there. Now, why would why you know kind of joking about it slightly, and I hope, you know, hope it isn't depressing you. But why do you go into this? It's because this is a diagnosis. This is a a diagnosis of the condition. How can you how can you overcome a condition if you don't know what the actual pathology is?
2: You
0: know, this is the Buddha's basic argument about this. Yeah, it's like going to a doctor, and the doctor doesn't really give you a thorough checkup. And forms their ideas about what's wrong with you, you know, on a half-formed diagnosis, mm. yeah, without actually thoroughly examining you, thoroughly examining the condition. Yeah. So, if you want to know why why there is so much of this in Buddhist thought, then this is because it's getting the pathology right. Because if if you understand the pathology, in some ways, you know, understand how you can get out of it, mm. yeah, and it's only with that that is the that is the Four Noble Truths, it's the the truth of cessation, it's the truth of the remedy. You only know you can overcome it if you really see very, very clearly the how and the why and the wherefore of why we're in this state in the first place, why you're confused, why you're entrapped. So that's the reason for this. So would the... What four noble truths tru- 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 actually written out in the form of a medical? Di- what they modelled on? Yes, like they were the
2: diagnosis and the prescription.
0: That was how it was. They they were basi- basically basically modelled on the kind of Ayurvedic diagnosis that we've got on. Yeah. you go with a problem, diagnose what your problem is. Here's your cause. Actually, everything gets better once you identify a cause, mm-hmm. because it means. Uh, and in, in fact, some of my teachers in the past used have said, actually, the only real the real noble truth you need to know is the second one. And actually what we're doing here in looking at Paticca Samuppada and looking at dependent origination in quite a lot of detail is you're looking at the second of the Noble Truths. Mm,
1: just the
0: second one. Excuse me. There is a cause. Thank you. <laughs> <Sumudya>. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So just going through it just very quickly. Dukkha. Mm. There is Dukkha. That's the truth. It's not a noble truth. It's an ennobling truth. Mm. As I always say... Um, It's ennobling by inquiring into it. There's nothing noble about suffering in itself. However, inquiring into it ennobles one. It creates aria. It makes one noble. Again, this is a Buddha playing with the language of his time. In fact, the very worst translation you possibly have is noble truth, Mm. out of all translations. Mm. But it's the one that keeps getting parroted again and again and again and again. So it's an ennobling truth. The ennobling truth of there is a cause to Dukkha. And that cause is immediately identified, and you should know this as craving. That's the proximate, immediate cause that we can identify um, to our dukkha condition. Then there's really good news, and we tend to forget this. You know, again, doubt, sceptical doubt can creep in, one of your Anusias, you know, That it's possible to be liberated from this condition. In other words, to bring it to an end, to stop leaking, to <laughs> in that lovely image I gave you the other night, um, to bring it to an end, though, to bring it to still stillness, and then there is a regimen back to health, and that's the ennobling eightfold path. And that that's your diagnosis. That is your that's your diagnosis and your cure in many ways, laid out very, very simply. And all we're doing in Petita Samuppada, as I say, in Dependent Origination, is looking at the details of the problem so that you can enact the curative measures in full knowledge of what the problem is.
2: Mm.
0: Because otherwise you can, and this is part of the Buddha's criticism of other traditions of his own period, was you can think you have overcome the problem, where all you've got yourself into is a kind of blissful, blissed-out state,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, where the problem is actually left intact. is a bit like taking a pill, where you deal with the symptom, but you don't deal with the underlying cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the reason why the Buddha was critical of those who just practice Samadhi-type meditations, mm-hmm. yeah. and why emptiness meditations, the Vipassana, the insight forms with the forms which made what he was teaching radically different from what was being taught before, in his own period. So it's only with that insight that you can bring a stilling, that you can actually bring this to cessation, you know, this whole procedure. So the Sankaras, as you can see, there's slightly more to of them here. Now one who is inquiring into bringing about the uprooting of those latent tendencies which are rooted into the sankharas, yeah, these formations, is termed going against the stream.
2: Mm.
0: One who is doing that. Mm. Now you can see that's quite obvious because actually, as in society, there's a lot of feeding of those, goes on, mm. yeah, of those seven tendencies. There's a lot of feeding of them going as goes on. So, society is perpetuating it. So, one who is going against the stream, here, however, sticks their foot in. You know, having understood thoroughly, and I won't go into all the details of how you get to it at the point, but then they are known as stream entering. And that's where you get the term stream entering. You're entering the stream because you're going against it. You're going against the tide of normal experience. So if you're really inquiring and wishing to uproot these, you're a deep radical. (laughs) And if you really want to be radical, start paying attention and develop awareness. Because these are the opposite of that. Okay, so we've got the sankharas. There's a little bit, as I say, a little bit of nuance in there, a little bit more detail in terms of the sankharas. Sankhara's then condition consciousness. The arising of consciousness. Consciousness is then going to condition the six... Sorry, is going to condition nama-rupa. It's going to condition name and form. Nama, all of those mental realities that we have. Rupa... All of the physical dimensions. Rupa actually in the tradition is more about, not so much literally flesh and blood, it's about our sensing of the physical. Yeah. Both physicality and our sensing of that physicality. Yeah. So it's often spoken about in terms of the ancient elements, earth, fire air, and water. It doesn't take a kind of great leap of the imagination to see what, what is Earth, that's solidity, it's the sensing of solidity, water, the sensing of fluidity, yeah, and so on and so forth. And then of course, there is all the mental stuff that's going on. All of these are being conditioned through consciousness by the sankharas, with their latent tendencies, with ignorance and its that paints. that's the bleakest picture you're going to get. <laughs> That's what you're working with. Now, I mean, if one is honest about this and really ends up, well, no wonder we're confused. No wonder we're in the state we're in a lot of the time in the world. Not to say there aren't pleasant things in the world, but somehow we can even manage to subvert pleasantness by grasping after it, as a kind of latent tendency.
1: You said name and form.
0: Yep, name and form. Name
1: was what?
0: Name is all of the mental dimensions of our experience Rupa is all of the physical dimensions of our experience and both of them remember as I was saying the other night without going again into more detail about this are being blueprinted by the conditioning of the previous factors by the previous three factors so the previous three links are conditioning our approaches to how we're going to be from physical mental moment to one moment to the next And laying it out into the future, because they are sankharas, they are volitional, I, with volition, eat something which is bad for me, and I continue to do it because it's laid down, I have a particular view of myself, and various other factors that come into play, and therefore at some point in time that's going to mature and ripen, probably into an illness. Now think about this the opposite way, if I start laying down good tendencies, we talked about these are all negative if I start laying down good tendencies, trying to engage in good actions, wholesome thoughts, wholesome ways of approaching the body, then perhaps that's going to fruit wholesomely in the future. So it's, again, looking at intention behind it. Now those are going to, of course, to condition then the sense bases. Sense bases, the six ordinary sense bases that we all know, Our taste, our touch, our smell, our hearing, you know, those are all going to be conditioned by what has gone before, including our mental sense base as well. Our mental sense base is is going to be conditioned by all of the factors stemming from ignorance, and I'm not going to list them all out again here. Those are all being conditioned. Which is then going to condition, of course, because we have the sense bases, including the mental sense base, or mental sense sphere, is going to condition our Vedana. Sorry, it's going to condition our contact and then our Vedana. Can
3: I just interject? Um, You say about uh, all of the previous factors conditioning how we actually experience the world through our senses. So, like, I'm eating a peanut butter sandwich and somehow... Somehow, that's not actually present
0: experience. That's
3: it? right. It's actually based on my past experience of peanut butter. Salt. Yes. <laughs> yes. How, how
0: so? I don't see that. Um, because you know, for example, if some of you know, if some of the sankharas that have been set up remember their dispositions, propensities to behave, propensities to think, propensities to experience something in a certain way, <laughs> if that has been already set down at some point in time, it doesn't. Need, you don't need to say when. But it's been set down in some particular part of time that I like what I taste or I don't like what I taste.
3: Doesn't that come later, though, that liking? I mean, the actual sense contact, the actual sensing the taste of something, isn't that in the moment?
0: No, it's not necessarily in the moment. That's the whole point about this, is that it's not necessarily. The taste when I'm tasting through, if you like, previous experience, isn't in the moment. It's simply a taste of the past. It's... A, a perception, which has been conditioned by past experience, which I bring in. So it's associated. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Sometimes you will keep going and revisiting something you think you like, and somehow it subtly changes, and you don't like it anymore anymore because something has changed within it. Yet the drive is still there to want to experience that. Yes, of anybody? Yeah. yeah. Can you connect with that? Wins, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, there was past <laughs> pleasure, there, there was past pleasure and associative pleasure yeah. that you now expect to experience in this moment, but conditions have changed in this moment, so I don't experience it quite the same, yet I still expect to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: I can see that yeah. there's
3: ver- you know, the possibility of variation according to kind of um, past experience and, and how that might change, but there must be a certain... Pers- You know, a certain amount of actually receiving just the information you're getting from the peanut butter at the moment. Do you know what I mean? Is there space for
0: that? There is. There is is information coming through. But unfortunately, it's been overlaid by most of this baggage, as I, I was referring to it the other night, that comes in. So you don't actually really experience what's there. You know, whether it's your bacon sandwich or your peanut butter sandwich or any other sandwiches, one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's that,
2: does that mean that most of the, the senses, as we experience it in them, are perceptions?
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's oh. what we mean in a sense by sense perception: object, conscious, eye consciousness, mm-hmm. and a consciousness. That is perception. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can see the perceptive process, if you like, in looking at that the linkages we've already done. So by the time you get to contact, well, why do you have contact? Because you have senses. Why do you have senses? Because they're in relationship to a consciousness. Why do you have consciousness? Because they're in relationship to sankharas, to formations. So really what it's saying is none of your experience is clean. And you know, that was that question I posed the other night. Do you experience anything new? Or is it only associative?
1: So if you were were a Buddha then,
0: does that mean that food wouldn't have any taste?
1: wouldn't have any
0: flavour? No, not at all. It tastes exactly as it is now. It tastes exactly as it is, yes. So. So. So, (laughs) question mark. Well, it means that you're actually experiencing. I mean, I'm speculating about what a Buddha tastes. <laughs> 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 Talking about metaphysical speculation. <laughs> I mean, how far can it get? But I mean, based on based on what really is being said, it is saying that the, the sanya, the discrimination of what is there, isn't just simply invoking past experience. It's actually tasting. And remember that phrase that I keep saying from Niyatan. Perhaps I'll bring it out and quote it to you properly. The whole thing. In the tasting, only the tasting. And what it's saying is, not that it doesn't have a taste, that I'm just not bringing loads of other stuff that doesn't have to be there in that moment of tasting, in that moment of hearing, in that moment of touching. When we taste and when we touch in, ordinary, in the ordinary sangsaric world, in our sangsaring experience, we don't do that. Taste comes with association, past experience. You know, sound, think of music, you know, the most common form of our uh, listening experiences for most people. That comes with whole rafts of association, you know, a piece of music. Do you actually hear the music? You know, some composers got so fed up with it, they started composing discordant music to really try and shake up people's way of listening. <laughs> yeah. you know, because you couldn't hum the tune.
1: piece of fabric and and from past experience you think you know what it's going to feel like and you reach out and touch it and it's completely different and you have that immediate experience of you know i mean what i'm assuming is in that case you're actually experiencing the the feeling you're you're perceiving what what is there and and the the, the idea that you know you had in your mind before you actually made that contact was different so is that not Experiencing in the moment. So you said a well, few other feelings that you've had. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You would still compare it. and make it compare it, I was going to say
0: comparative. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 I, I mean. The, and sort of put it sort of in, in perspective, as it were. In yeah. Mind.
0: And we're all. I mean, actually, it's one of the chief ways we often do things is comparing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Comparatives. Yeah. It
1: just happens so quickly that
0: you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, notice how this even goes on. If you're talking about comparatives, how it even goes on about comparing one sitting session to another sitting session,
2: mm.
0: one part of a sitting session to another sitting session, comparing yourself to what another is doing. You know, even in an environment like this, a lot of comparison is going on all the time. I actually think comparison is a really, way, a really good way. If you want to make yourself
1: miserable, yes, compare. <laughs> yeah. So is it like well, well, just basically overloading? It? <laughs> okay. What I find hard to imagine not happening is having some sense of function of something. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking if there were bananas at the time of the Buddha and he was given a banana, <laughs> would he have known to peel it before he ate it? Mm. Because if you're coming to something completely new, mm. you wouldn't know that. Sometimes
0: you? you wouldn't. No, That's right. That's right. You wouldn't know what to do with it.
1: No.
0: So some of these... But some of these conditioned factors... Such as the knowing what to do with something, yeah. and in some senses, de- well, in some senses, in pretty well all senses, don't have any ethical, moral outcome to them.
1: So they'd be okay. They still would be bring okay. That to your experience. Exactly. Yes. Okay.
0: Yes. For example, if you had to do with every level of your, ex- if you had to think about every level of your experience, then you wouldn't get anything done. Mm-hmm. If I had to think every time about, well, what would I do with this? Mm -mm. Every time I I go through a door, how do I open it? Do I open it this way, that way? Does it slide? Is there going to be a chasm on the other side of the door? (laughs) That kind of thing. You wouldn't get anything done. But these don't hold moral consequences. These are just ways of finding a way ordinarily about the world. Now, what the Buddha really is talking about is elements that bring Dukkha into our experience. Mm-hmm. That is really the, remember, the focus of what he's doing. So it's not a kind of grand theory mm-hmm. of everything. It's very specifically focused on that which is going to cause us dukkha. So
3: it's just seeing through that lens of, of our experience, basically, isn't it? It's seeing at how we perpetuate suffering. Yes. Um, but not maybe the totality of our experience.
0: That's right. Yeah, It's not meant to be a grand theory of everything.
3: Does that make sense? Yeah.
0: Remember, the Buddha's saying is, I teach Dukkha and the end of Dukkha, and the overcoming of Dukkha, nothing else. And everything is, you know, this very famous phrase you've probably come across, you know, there are more leaves in the forest than I teach, you, but everything you need to know is in this handful.
2: Mm.
0: And that's where it's focused on. It's focused on one problem. Now, the kind of thing that Bridget mentioned doesn't really create a problem for most of us doesn't really result in dukkha unless you really are perplexed (laughs) 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 about how you peel your (laughs) banana. So let's move on. Time time's getting on. And I still haven't got round to number twelve, still haven't told you who did it yet, have I? (laughs) So coming back again, we've got contact arising. Arising because of six cent bases. Out of contact, we're getting Vedana. And then, out of Vedana, we're getting craving. Now, I don't need to explicate those others because they're fairly clear, hopefully. Now, the nuancing in craving, when I started it the other night, goes on in the form of that craving is of three forms. Remember, karma, craving for sensual things, then having, of course... Bhava, craving for continued existence, and then moving into, of course, what's the next one? Who's going to tell us what the next one is? Vibhava. Vibhava. That's right. So, what? cr- What'd you say? <laughs> People keep talking. I can't stand
1: language. <laughs> okay. <laughs> craving for
0: continued existence is the second.
1: Yeah.
0: What's you know, the, third one? the wishing not to be.
2: Like?
0: The craving not to be. If you literally want it, mm. translate it properly. Now, Bhava Tanha, as I was trying to describe to you the other night, is linked with perpetuation in some form or another, and that's the most obvious level of it.
1: Sorry, can you say the English? What okay. you say Because I don't know all these words. OK. It's so, Thank
0: you. the craving to be... Right. The craving for continued existence, those are two ways you can translate it in English. Hmm. Those that can be seen as obviously the desire to perpetuate yourself in some way. And I went into a few examples, remember the other night? Could be absolute immortality of the soul type thing, all the way down to the label on the tombstone, through things like perpetuation through children and good works and all of these kind of facets. However, it's also psychologically in Buddhism linked with assertion, self-assertion, power, fame, the desire for wealth and the desire for recognition. Mm, (laughs) Mm. Now you can see how those form out of those grosser examples I've given you. The craving for sensual things, which is obviously the first of them. Well, how does that manifest psychologically? Well, it manifests psychologically particularly is excitement,
2: mm.
0: the wish for diversion. Exposure, as I said the other night, to new stimuli, to novel stimuli. These are all the psychological manifestations of it. Now I think put in these terms, I hope you can see. They're not a million miles away from what we're actually experiencing most of the time. And then finally, if we're going to gloss, nuance, the desire not to be a little bit further, then what do we get with that? Aggressive behaviour, suicide, and extremely painful shortcuts to avoid painful experiences. So in other words, we try to avoid pain, but create pain, in their avoidance of it. All three of these are interlinked. I would suggest, and this would leave you to think about this, I suggest that you probably go through most of these in one day. The desire to be, the desire for sensual things, yeah, and the desire not to be at times. And you can see this very clearly that sometimes, for example, the desire for sensual things, such as, let's take the kind of, again, the examples of addiction, alcohol, something like that, food, can be an expression, or sexuality even, can be an expression of the desire not to be. If you do it to excess, it's actually an abnegation of responsibility, of being. These can be mixed up also with the desire to be as well, so in that desire to be, pushing it a bit further, it goes into the desire not to be, using the same stimuli, often. Mm -hmm. So all three are intermixed in our experience. I kind of said, you on a good day, you on a bad day. No, this is all you on one day. Again, this is what is going on. Then we get, of course, to Upadana. To attachment, grasping. just to refresh your memories, remember I gave you the example the other night, uh, actually what the Buddha is talking about in regard to Upadana. He's, he's talking about that which feeds the flames of greed, aversion and delusion. So it's actually by grasping and holding on to things, both our, obviously the things we dislike as much as the things we like in this world grasping attachment is the really really big problem it's our sense of entrapment here. is that a sort of
1: push pull both ways
0: it's, it's yes it can be but it's arising out of craving as well this desire to you know, I crave to avoid and I crave yeah. to have you know, and I grasp after that craving to avoid and I grasp after that craving to have certain things. So it's that movement that we have. So there is a sense of entrapment. Now the entrapment here is by what we don't want, and by what we want. We're entrapped by that. And you've probably all heard the examples of, and these are the examples that are actually used in the text, trapping monkeys. And actually, unfortunately, they're pretty graphic, the accounts of what actually happens to the monkeys in the end. But these are the ways, the ancient ways of trapping monkeys. Um, The classic one is, I think I might have given this to you, but I'll just say it again, laying down tar in the forest. And the monkey puts its foot in, it's got one foot stuck, now it puts its paw in to pull out the other foot, to pull out the foot, now it's got its paw stuck, it puts in its other foot, and then it puts in its final paw, and then it puts its head in, and you've got one really stuck monkey.
2: There. (laughs)
0: And it really needed to reach out for something outside. And the analogy, of course, in the text is you should reach out for the dharma to help to pull you out of the mess that you're in. And particularly reaching out for awareness to stop yourself from being stuck in this way. Mm. Now, the other example that's used, um, the classic example, I think even more pertinent to most of our conditions, which is that you bury something like a small bowl with a thin neck in it just wide enough so the monkey can put its paw in and the monkey puts its paw in reaches down and grabs say a piece of fruit which is in the bottom of it holds onto it Mm -hmm. and now the monkey's trapped all he's got to do is let go of what it's holding Mm -hmm. and it can get away and i think that's so pertinent
2: Mm -hmm.
0: as a metaphor for our condition
2: Mm
0: -hmm. most of us are entrapped in some way and it's obviously by what we have but equally by what we don't want to happen to us we're entrapped by those conditions yeah, so there's that real feeling occasionally and there's a wonderful poem by Rilke I don't know if you know, ever know called The Panther it's about a panther in a zoo it says you know, every time it's pacing up and down its cage sometimes it glimpses freedom through the bars it just glimpses that freedom um, but can never get there because of its entrapment in a way, that's often our condition. We glimpse this freedom and we know it's there for us, but we can't let go enough to experience it. And this is unlike actually the panther, yeah. you know, which actually requires to, somebody else to let it go. But we are entrapped, even glimpsing possibilities of freedom. It's like, and this is why I continue to use and will do, just in the final example I give, the example of addiction. Because in a way, the Buddha is saying to us all, we are all addicts. Yeah. Okay, there are the classifiable addictions which people have in society and they're a social problem. Actually, the whole of society is an addictive problem. Mm. Yeah. What we're encouraged to want, what we're encouraged not to want in our lives. Yeah. It's an, and it's an addiction that we're deeply, deeply attached to. So it's like the addict who wants to give up and I think most of us want to, in some ways, release ourselves from forms of behavior such as some of the Anuss. How many of us want to constantly be caught up in sense, desire, and anger? Yeah you don't sense any freedom in that, do you? I mean, I don't I think that most people don't sense any freedom in that because there you are, a certain stimuli, and you know certain people can push push your buttons very quickly, yeah. And there you are being angry, being irritated with them, resenting them, really disliking it. There you are, as I suggested again the other night, with the something that you desire and you want it and you can't get it out of your head. You know, it could be a person, could be a thing, you know, could be anything, that you want it and it's there, stuck, <laughs> so you're entrapped by it. So what's entailed? Well, might like the monkey, let go. Because otherwise it's going to pan out into the next of the links, Mm. which is becoming bhava. The next of the bhava, which in a sense is the creation or the attempt to create a certain situation for yourself, i.e. the possession or the avoidance of something.
1: What's what's
0: bhava mean? Bhava means becoming. Becoming. Literally that's what it means in this context. Now, if you hear that, what it actually means is to try and create a situation where you get or you avoid something. So, if you like, it's the manipulation of a situation for yourself.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: That ends up in the eleventh link, which is you are born into that situation. You're born into a situation whether you get it or not. You're born into a situation whether you avoid it or not. That is literally jati, which means birth. What do
1: you mean by you're born into it?
0: For- well, actually, you end up in a place, don't you? Either psychically or physically in a place.
1: So by by being manipulative to try and get
0: what you want... Yeah, or to try and avoid what you don't want...
1: You end up in in suffering. Yes.
0: Yes. You end up in a situation. Now that can be a psychological situation, or it can literally be a physical one, which is the one I'm going to kind of give you. But even if you end up in it, and this is again the tale, of course, of emptiness, even if you end up with what you really want... Even if you end up with what you really wanted to avoid, you know, in other words, with the avoidance of something, then that situation is going to decline and it's going to disappear. Because all things are changing and they won't remain the same, no matter how hard you strive. So, there you have in the Twelve Links. A vision of entrapment. Twelve.
2: Twelve. Twelve, twelve. twelve links. Death the
0: twelfth is, is decline oh. and dissolution. Oh. Usually oh. talked about as old age and death. So the last two links, if you want them in literal translations, is birth, link eleven, old age and death, link twelve.
1: Is that becoming?
0: No, that's link ten. Now, let me just run these through for you again, so you've got all of the links in the traditional form. i got
1: lost at the end. i got becoming. And that was it. Okay, well, let me, let me just
0: go through it, so, just so don't, I don't want to leave anybody confused or missing, missing a few links, and then you might go out searching for the missing link. <laughs> Sorry, it's this time of night. <laughs> okay, first link, ignorance. Ignorance, conditions, formation. Second link. Formations condition consciousness, third link. Consciousness conditions nama-rupa, name and form, mind and body, third link. Fourth, sorry, fourth link. Okay, so ignorant, formations, consciousness, name and form. Okay, that's the first four. Okay. Name and form will condition six sense bases. (coughs) Six Sense Bases will condition contact. Contact will condition feeling.
1: Is contact another... Is
0: contact is another link, yes. So that's number six. It's number six, that's right. Invading
1: oh. is number seven.
0: That's right. Oh. Then you've got craving.
1: Yeah.
0: Craving will condition attachment. Attachment will condition becoming. Coming will condition birth, and birth will condition old age and death.
1: So, when they have the the links with the less links, what are they missing out? Uh,
0: in in the nine links that the Buddha gives, he starts basically from name and form. Mm-hmm rather than the first, because in death a way... In, in, death is in, the name of yeah. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: So that birth one, is that when you said you end up with a particular situation? That's right.
3: So, and then, no matter how
0: hard you try and hold on to that, it goes. So that's yes. the death, or how yeah. matter yeah. how hard you try to avoid it, it will yeah. come and go. Yeah. So everything is in the process of decline and dissolution. Yeah. Be it pleasurable, unpleasurable. It's in the situa- It's in that particular situation. So it's empty of any stability. Yeah. So how
1: does
0: it miss out ignorance then? It misses it out in the I and mean, really, this is in the Mahanidana Sutta, which is the big Sutta on the twelve links. The link is nidana in, in Pali. In that Sutta, he misses it out because he's concentrated on concentrating on the most obvious ones, rather than the really difficult ones. Now. You've know, just had the conversation we've had this evening. Mm-hmm. Those first links are very difficult. You know, because ignorance isn't simply empty, it has this content of the asavas. Mm-hmm. The sankaras have the contents of these latent dispositions. He doesn't go into all that in this particular sutta. You know, and so it's much more, again, oriented practically. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. When you say conditions, do you mean creates the conditions for, is that, is that what it means? Yes. Or depends
0: upon, that's the other way of translating.
1: So that's sort of, but it comes before it, so it doesn't depend upon it.
0: Oh, it does, you know, because you know, ignorance conditions, or, you can the other way of putting it, the sankharas depend upon ignorance. Oh, yeah,
1: the one before it. Sorry, yes. but when you say ignorance conditions formations, yeah. that's the other way around, isn't it? That's yeah. ignorance, that doesn't depend upon formation. No, it doesn't depend upon formation. It creates the conditions for formation. Right.
0: Yeah. Now, the opposite way around is, is the Buddha's ask, why you know, dissolution and decline and disappearance? Because something comes into being, which is birth. Why birth? Because of becoming. Why becoming? because of attachment. And so you can go all the way around the other way, all the way around to ignorance. So it shows you the relationships of dependencies in each direction. Now, the one thing I really want you to get clear about this, because we'll kind of move somewhere else next week, and hopefully there'll be lots of questions about this tomorrow, is that it's entirely practical. I hope it hasn't sounded too intellectual, because I didn't mean it to. It's entirely practical, the whole thing. It's meant, as I say, to be diagnostic, to give you the whys and wherefore of the condition we find ourselves in. This is a description of that samsara condition. Yeah. If you follow it through, you can, as I joked about it earlier, really see why the mess we're in, yeah. why we continue to repeat. In many ways, the cycle of samsara is also um, a description of our compulsion to keep on repeating things, Thanks. even when we know they don't work, yeah. such as avoidance. Such as holding on. Every time I do that, every time I do that, I actually, I'm reinforcing rather than freeing myself from anything.
1: I mean, it drives you mad, doesn't it? Because you sort of know. It drives me a bit mad because there's certain things I know I'm going to do mm. again.
2: Yeah.
1: And I've done them before and I know where it gets me and I just I can see it coming. Yeah. You know, when I leave the retreat, for example, certain things that aren't happening here. Yes. <laughs> but <they're>, I know, and <laughs> it's just like, ah, oh. you know, yeah. even though I know all this, I mean, there is a part of me that thinks, well, maybe next time, if I'm mindful enough in that moment, I could take a different route, but yeah. it's so deep, isn't it? Yeah,
0: those, those habitual patterns reassert themselves very, very quickly. Now, without giving yourself a hard time about this, because i are not meant to do it, you can say, If you understand a little bit about this structure that I've given you, you can understand why that occurs. It's because there are these deep-lying tendencies
2: mm-hmm.
0: within us. Now, okay, if that is the case, what can we deal with? Well, we can deal with the craving and the attachment. That's where we can really deal with it. The craving to avoid, the craving to have. The attachment to avoidance strategies... Because actually, a lot of this, a lot of our lives are just avoidance traps. I mean, even Freud thought this. You know, the pleasure principle wasn't about pleasure; it was about the avoidance of pain. It had nothing to do with pleasure. <laughs> so, you know, the attachment that we have. You know, I joked about. It, I gave you some examples the other night and said, you know, the, you know we're deeply um, entrapped by things that we even hate. We really don't like them anymore, but we still don't get rid of them, or very rarely do we get rid of them. We're that deeply attached to them. Now, obviously, I'm talking about physical things, but even aspects of our own character, personality at this stage, we still are attached to. We don't see the empty nature of it. We don't see that actually most of those things that we are holding on to, about ourselves even, are actually empty of any substantiality. So... Quick example to finish finish this off this evening. Well, let's take an example such as an addictive person. An addictive person will probably be trying to quell addiction, trying to quell the problems of the world, trying to ignore certain facets of it by setting up a habit of some form. Now this might be, let's just take for an example, something like alcohol. So, we've got the pattern set up. That's past experience. I've always avoided certain things, existential problems, if you want to call them that, by having a drink. And now this is common behaviour. I mean, this is burgeoning in these countries, particularly in Britain. I don't know if it's like in other European countries, but in Britain, alcoholism is burgeoning. So this is not just any old problem that I'm giving here. This is one that is actually deeply ingrained into our society. So you cope with certain problems, often existential problems in life, by this avoidance strategy, avoiding things. Now that, of course, um, for the addict, is their first object of consciousness. If you talk to any addict, anybody who's really being addicted to any substance, the thing that's constantly on their mind, even when they're not doing it, is that thing that they want, that substance that they require. Yeah, you can put in your own examples here. I'm sure you can think of other examples than this. This is just a, a rather, you know, I think it's I say, a very personal example, but a rather obvious one. Yeah, so that's the first object of consciousness, is that habit,
2: mm.
0: and the satiation or the need to satiate that habit. Mm. Now that is going to obviously pattern mind and body. Yeah, somebody who drinks to excess is setting up patterns in the body
3: can we go to a slightly more subtle um example because that's kind of, kind of with an addict there's there's really physical addiction you know that, that that's conditioning behavior as well as psychological and, and and you know but i mean most of us don't have that kind of physical addiction mm. to something
0: well perhaps can, can i go through the example first okay. of all and then i'll try and see if i can mm. more subtly change it into something lesser because actually, even, even in a lot of these cases, it's not necessarily physical addiction. A lot of it can be just mental, psychological addiction yeah. as well.
3: Yeah. But, yeah, but alcohol often is, you know. Oh, yes,
0: it often is. I'm not saying, I'm not discounting it, but I'm saying there's a huge component of psychological addiction, not just mental. It's
1: not yeah.
0: different, yeah. Yeah, psychological addiction, not just physical addiction. So, we've got the first object of consciousness being the substance. We've got it patterning mind and body.
1: What do you mean by that, in mind and mind?
0: Well, it's setting up a blueprint. Setting up, obviously, dispositions to be ill in certain ways. To be ill? Yes. Yeah. Physically. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: yeah. It's bound to. It affects different people differently, but it's going to set up a pattern in the body that's going to have a fruit. And it's also setting up patterns in the mind.
2: Yeah.
0: Neural pathways, if you really want it, in that way. It's setting up neural pathways. So that is then conditioning senses. Ways of seeing, ways of tasting, ways of touching. These are all being conditioned by that. Now that will give rise, obviously, to contact, as we've said before. But the important thing here is the contact is the Vedana. The Vedana here is... the unpleasantness perhaps of not having a drink, the pleasantness of having it, and so and then setting up the patterns of craving that you've got. Now that can be linked, for example, for the desire not to be. Total avoidance.
2: I could also get the starting point, actually, couldn't I?
0: Pardon? That yeah. could also be the starting. Point. It could also be the starting point. Yeah, yeah. yeah this. You know, again, you have to look at the whole circle yeah. in a way that interacts with each different part. So you have set up this. You now you've got. Now you've got the craving to satisfy. You know, craving for the drink, whatever it. You know, um, however it manifests. The attachment, not letting go of it, because actually somebody is deeply wanting this. They want going you know, to fulfil into the next link, which is the link of becoming, to trying to get that drink in some way or another. Going out and buying it, or going down to the pub, or whatever. Then they find themselves, in a way, in a situation. In the pub, buying the drink. And even when they get it, of course, any feelings they've had about it decline and disappear. All good things come to an end. (laughs) <laughs> closing time <laughs> joking about it but so there's going to have to be repetition of the whole cycle now, <clears throat> more subtle version <laughs> more subtle version because actually in many ways I think you know, no matter what your craving is that's being set up you know, say a pattern of avoidance whatever your pattern of avoidance is and you use that strategy might be deflecting yourself, let's say, into something like music. Using music as a pattern of avoidance. And yeah, deeply sedimented, set down into the psyche. You could follow the whole... I'm not going to go through the whole thing again, but you can see how that would work in the same way of trying to anaesthetise the problems of life. Deep attachment to it. The craving to get it. The... Placing oneself in a situation where you achieve that goal. But just like the you know the addict in a sense with the drink, even that comes to an end and you've got to repeat the whole cycle again. Does that make sense? Now I think you can almost place in you know in that slot, you know, the craving to avoid certain things, the deep attachment to certain things, anything. Yeah, because we use all kinds of tools. So the, addiction, the addictions, the big ones, are the most obvious ones that people are involved with. But actually, most of what goes in on terms of our behaviour is much, much, much more subtle than that.
1: I mean, yeah, there's stuff like craving for positive regard, and yeah. you're constantly That's trying right. to get approval, and you get it, but you don't believe it because you think you're rubbish, and you go out and get it again, and you just. That's right. you have A lot of energy, isn't it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> 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 That's the succinct version. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know, that's more of a sort of random day-to-day one. I think that a lot of people want. Yes, it is. Yes. Avoid criticism.
0: But it's it's the compulsion. Now the whole point about this. Remember, I was saying earlier on. I'll kind of finish. This, we'll just have a few minutes for questions. Is the compulsion to repeat? Yeah. This is obsessive-compulsive neurotic behaviour. And I'm not saying that lightly. And I'm not saying that to be dismissive of what we're engaged in. And what we're engaged in is that kind of behaviour. That we think we can solve problems out of past experience, often, and therefore get embroiled in entrapment of a perpetuation of previous experience. So, if you've ever had that, sorry, I was just going to say, if you've ever had that feeling of déjà vu, well, you've probably had it. Definitely, you've done it before in some way or another. Not identically, but mm. very similarly. So, um,
1: I was just going to say, but all because of furniture um,
2: Yeah, because, because of
1: if something was constantly satisfying, then you wouldn't need to go out and find a lot. That's right. But nothing is constantly just...
0: nothing is constantly satisfying. Nothing, nothing will give you constant pleasure. Yeah. That's the sad, sad thing about it. Now. I say sad, but that could also be exciting because it actually means that we have to find meanings otherwise than in the certainties of something giving us pleasure continuously. We become those meaning-garnering, I don't know, beings, as opposed to just sticking rigidly at trying to get one meaning out of things in our lives, or one value, one sense of being. Because it's terribly sad. It's terribly, terribly sad, if that's the case. That If we're entrapped within this particular position of doing and being compelled almost to keep on repeating. Compelled, and this is really the crux of it, isn't it? Compelled to keep on wishing to avoid. Compelled to keep on wanting to have. Our societies encourage it. They really, really encourage it. So if you take going against the tide, actually as being going against those... Deep latent tendencies. Actually, I think we have something much more obvious. Actually, mm-hmm. is the tide of the conditioning of the societies we live in that's pushing you in and stimulating you into this kind of behaviour, as well as what's coming from within, anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of mutual reinforcement. Yeah.
1: It's a modern day enslavement. Fun. It's a modern day enslavement. Yeah. It keeps us
0: all in order. Yes, it is. Yeah. I, I mean. It's a very pessimistic view, but there's a couple of French philosophers, uh, Deleuze and Guattari, who actually said that you know the whole purpose of Western society was to turn beings into desiring machines. (laughs) (coughs) Mm -hmm. That's what the purpose of Western society was to do: to create (coughs) and stimulate desire for material goods. It doesn't sound so implausible. Sometimes. What
1: do you think of world free trade and all that?
0: So, living in this way means to see a certain degree of emptiness at the heart of this pursuit. That this is an empty pursuit. What are you, and I've said this phrase a number of times over the last couple of evenings, what are you grasping after? That's literally what is there to grasp after. Most of the things that are on offer including the psychological securities that seemingly are given by engaging in this behaviour, the circular behaviour that we do, are vapid. They are like grasping after water. There's nothing, very little of anything substantial there at all. So actually, when you begin to see that, even in its smallest sense it's actually, if you like the first liberation that's the first element of liberation then it becomes a deepening experience gosh, I've said a lot, haven't I? I think I ought to shut up now (laughs)
1: But before it retreats over, you'll you'll give us the good news about
0: some of my good <laughs> I will give you the good news if you really want the good news.
2: Oh
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: No, there's wonderful qualities of mine. <laughs> <laughs> but we want
1: you to tell us
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> I told you about some of them yesterday, which is the you know, the guardians of the world. Here in note about our sense of shame. <laughs>
1: That's
0: not the best thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> How about compassion?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> that's within the mind as well. Yeah. yeah. Non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. These are also there. <laughs> All of those factors are present. Subhana, beautiful factors. Together with a lot of other terms as well. Generosity. Kind of. No, that comes under compassion. Okay, yeah. So there's an awful lot of these qualities which are present in the mind. But you've got to discern them. You've got to cultivate them. You've got to work at seeing them within your own continuum. And sometimes it doesn't come easy because I've, I've always said... On certain occasions you have to engage in behavior rather than look for them within the mind. To stimulate them, you have to engage in the behavior mm-hmm. that goes with them. Mm-hmm. Actually, metabhavana, though the, the meta practice itself, is a way of stimulating something which doesn't necessarily come naturally.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's a way of awakening that faculty you know, so that we begin to see and experience very, very differently. Now, engaging in any of these practices, which Cultivate those qualities of the mind means breaking free of some of the chains of desire. Now, where, as I've said, we can bring it to an end is bringing, you know, trying to sever wherever we can that immediate you know, relationship between vedana, between feeling and craving, or desire to try and sever it as often as we can become aware of it. So you're just left with the feeling. <laughs> not with everything else that follows.
3: The desire is a feeling too, though, isn't it? I, 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 you know, find it difficult to catch the, um, you know, there's kind of the sensation of the taste or whatever, and then, and then there's the craving that kind of follows straight away afterwards. But, but it's between craving and the action, isn't it,
0: that's... Well, perhaps I think that there's something lying in the word feeling, which is really why I try to often use the word sensation for what the word Vedana. Because feeling has the connotations in English that it doesn't have in the original language. So it's a bare sensation, and it's a bare sensation of pleasant or unpleasant or neither. Nothing
3: else. Mm-hmm. So
0: it's not an emotional quality. <laughs>
3: then the craving that comes after it is also like a felt sensation isn't it that you can stick with but you don't have to act on I you don't, don't have to really do, no
0: that's place. exactly what I'm trying to say yeah. you don't have to act on it yeah. but you can actually stop it at that point Thereby, in a way you break and sever that certainly that chain of reactivity
2: if you have a taste for example at what stage a taste added that, that is a good taste or bad taste is it is there, uh, is it a taste or is, is the cooler or something something additional to
0: it is the, is the taste itself what at what point does the taste become good or bad it's, or unpleasant or unpleasant pleasant. immediately oh
2: yeah
0: it's the immediate taste you know, it's, it's not a question of you know because actually it's the immediacy of the sensation that we act on yeah. and actually most of that so it is part of
2: the sensation itself
0: but the sensation itself, we can't alter. I can't alter the sensation. You know, if I put my you know, if I'm wired in the way I am, and I'm not a masochist, mm-hmm. if I stick my hand in the fire, it's going to be unpleasant. I don't have a choice about that. You know? Whereas, you know, certain facets, I actually have choices about. Now, I have a choice whether to follow through on craving itself but they don't have a choice about pleasant-unpleasant. You you see this with children, don't you? Taste something they don't like, it's immediate. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening.
2: To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.